This week on Critical Sodium, we think of the children. We discuss the safety concerns on both the parents, kids, and teachers' perspectives on getting back into school. And we help you decide whether or not it's a good idea to go back to school this fall. We're your hosts. I'm Ashley, a nurse practitioner. I'm Michael, a doctor. And you're listening to Critical Sodium, a show where we dive deep into the nitty-gritty of health and medicine. So let's get started. So there's well over 30 million households with children and 50 million school-age children. And all of these families have noticed a significant change in their lifestyle since the beginning of COVID. Schools were closed, I would almost say, in a sort of panic phrase that we had in March, in which we didn't really know the best way to handle this thing. So a lot of reactive closures happened. All the kids went home. They've been distance learning. This pandemic has really taken a toll on parents' lifestyle because now they're having to transition to working to home or they may have lost their job or have been furloughed. But now they're also having to adjust to the new role of being a teacher. That's right. I'm sure that a lot of them are realizing exactly how hard it is to be a teacher, too, because I'm sure that the kids are having a difficult time with home with distance learning. There's also been a lot of research that's been brought up on the subject in which it's been shown that kids who don't go back to school are at significantly higher risk of suffering things like child abuse, descending into drug or substance abuse. Depression. Yeah, depression, increased suicide rate. And essentially, I would say that the school closures have been a huge problem, wouldn't you? I would say so, because a lot of kids depend on those food vouchers at school in order to eat. A lot of them are going hungry now that COVID has caused schools to shut down. However, some school cafeterias, more than 80% of schools, now offer food via drive-through, pickup, um, or walk-up services. So this is an option for schools to do and has seemed to help out families, according to a recent School Nutrition Association survey. Yeah, we can't just leave them high and dry. And there's also a disparity between the kids who come from means to hire expensive online tutor or get a fancy tutoring program versus the kids who may not have things like good electronics or internet access and are probably following behind right now. We're going to discuss a very important subject that's going to come up a lot in the next few months. I think school starts in what, September, October? August. August. Okay, August. Late and August. we got to figure out something by then because if we don't go back to school, there is no new normal. There is just not normal. But it's going to be tough. It's going to be an alien environment for the kids. They're not going to recognize their own school, and that could be a challenge. And everybody they know is going to be in a mask. I'm presuming this is going to be something that we see psychological effects from in five, ten years from now. Well, I think it's important for the kids, especially since it's such an important period of development, that we do everything possible to get them back to school. I feel so confident saying this because this is what the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended, but that's going to be a purely health standpoint. This doesn't take into account the feelings of the students or the teachers or the preferences of the community or the risk of the, if you're in a place where there's a raging COVID infection, it might make more sense just to do all distance learning for another semester. For that, we have a friend of the podcast, Daniel. So uh, my name is Daniel Dower. I am a high school teacher. I teach, um, I run an AVID program at Blue Gerville High School, um, and I teach students in grades 9 through 12. All right. And uh, how, how has this year gone for you so far? Um, the year that's coming up? Uh, well, I guess last uh, semester. Yeah. How, oh. What were the difficulties that you may have encountered when yeah, everything so was my, shut down? The last day that I saw students was March 12th. 
um, which was right before we had in the spring break. And we resumed right after spring break online learning, which we carried out for the duration of the school year. So you actually did the, the online teaching? Correct. So I was teaching online from mid-March all the way through the end of May. And did you, um, how did that work? Did you get like a curriculum that you followed or was there like some kind of service, like, like some company that you contracted with or how, how did you get a, you just did a lesson plan? That you so made? our districts already had set up Google Classroom. Like mm-hmm. we already, teachers already had accounts. Students were already uploaded. Um, some teachers had not ever used their Google accounts uh, or their, their Google Classroom accounts. I had, mm-hmm. like I used it in class um, to send information out. Um, I would post materials on there. I would share resources. So like when we transitioned, my students already had used Google Classroom several times, like under my supervision, like they were familiar with its features. It was not a surprise to them. Compared to an average year, do you feel like they were still learning as much as they would have in a normal semester or was it? Absolutely not. No, they were not learning nearly as much as they would have in a regular semester. That being said, they were still learning. Like I can, I can say, so my, the, the pace of learning was slower, right? Like it's a lot mm-hmm. harder to give feedback um, through distance learning, which slows down the process. So like, for example, my sophomores did a project where they, like they chose an issue uh, in society or their community and they wrote a persuasive speech on and gave a presentation about that. If we had done that during the school year, typically that unit takes four weeks. Uh, it took like eight weeks um, through distance learning. Um, and that's just because, you know, in the classroom, a student can, uh, be working and I can look over their shoulder and say, Hey, I see this thing that you're doing. What if you did this? Whereas when we're working through, you know, online, I have to wait till they've submitted a draft to me. I have to write comments, send the comments back to them, and then they have to go back and find those comments. And so, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of challenges and complications because I can't really, it's a lot harder to set the schedule for student work. I think another big problem is, you know, a lot of the students who I work with, when they were out, of, they realized they were out of school, they took on more hours at work. So a lot of my students who have jobs just like started working double their hours or working overtime. Uh, some of them have parents or family members who lost jobs. So mm-hmm. their income became pretty essential. So for them, it was like, yeah, I'll do my, my homework like the couple hours that I have to, but really I'm just going to work eight hours a day at Sonic. Did Man. any of them have problems with their internet? Yes. So if I, to give you a rough estimate, I would say 80% of my students had no issues. So 80% were able to get in, check in. I did like a daily check-in with them. 80%, no problem. Mm-hmm. The other 20% was a mix of students who had limited internet access. Um, maybe they didn't have a device or they didn't have like a, a Wi-Fi network at home. Or there were students who had those things, but then just weren't doing it. Um, so the district did take action to distribute laptops and Wi-Fi hotspots. So by the end of the school year, every student in our district who needed a laptop had a laptop and most students who needed Wi-Fi had received it. Um, so this year already the district has authorized the purchase of one-to-one laptops. So every kid is getting a laptop when we start the school year, whether we are all in person or distance learning. So did any of the parents, though, for like your students in ninth grade, did they have any problems with understanding how to make sure their kids stayed disciplined? Yeah, or help them do a project? Yeah, there were definitely a lot of parent concerns. I spent a lot more time um, in distance learning on the phone with parents than I have at any other 
you know, portion of my career. I mean, I'm, I've always like contacted parents, stayed in touch with them, but mm. like I was calling parents pretty much like every other week. Um, yeah. So I like would go through my list of, of parent contacts. I would just pick a day and just start making calls and checking in and saying like, how's it going? How's the workload? Is it too much? Is it too little? How are you doing? How were they doing? Not great. Um, a lot of parents were struggling with a lot of issues besides just their students learning, right? Like maybe they have, I mean, my, my students are, you know, teenagers. They can be somewhat self-sufficient, but maybe they have younger siblings who can't be. Um, you know, and a lot of parents were feeling a lot of like legitimate fear and concern um, mm-hmm. over not just their students, their, their children's learning situations, but like their own health and safety. Yeah, um, economic you know, we have, collapse and all. Yep. And I have, I have a lot of students whose families who I work with who are like financially uh, insecure, food insecure, housing insecure. So for them, like school was like third on the list of those things. Um, and so like they made the effort, right? Like a lot of the kids who I worked with, like who were pestering and like contact, like they turn in the minimum to get the grades that they needed, but it was not the highest priority for, for a lot of students. I, I wouldn't say the majority, but for a lot of them. It's one thing to see the statistics saying that kids don't learn as well, but when I actually hear what your experience is, it sounds worse than I was thinking. And so that kind of makes me wonder if we're doing damage. So let me, let me say, first of all, in-person schooling is without a doubt more effective at building student knowledge than distance learning. The question is not which one of those is more effective. We know which one is. The question is, is in-person learning in the middle of a pandemic more effective than distance learning? That's a different question. Yeah. And you know, the thing about this, this is such a weird virus because it's not what, it's not like the flu. You know, if it was, if it was like the flu where it killed children and old people, it would be a no brainer. But it almost seems like it doesn't really affect children as much as older people. But they, if they give it to their grandma or one of the older teacher gets it, they might die. So there's all this talk about what the next school year is going to look like. And the question is, first of all, is that realistic and enforceable? And second, yeah. will that be enough? Like, will those those safety measures actually prevent spread of the virus? There's all these like mediating things that were in the Association of Pediatric Article I read. But it seems like those are all things that might fall apart the minute you realize 10% of your school has COVID. And, and, here's, and, and let me, because I've read this report, American Association of Pediatrics. Yeah. Uh, here's the problem. Um, those people don't work in schools. They mm-hmm. probably, many of them haven't really been in a school for an extended period of time since mm-hmm. they were students, right? They're doctors, which like fair, like doctors yeah. should be writing standards for medical care and like what, you know, hospital procedures look like. The problem is the people who are writing standards and procedures for what school should look like are not teachers. Okay, they're, they're elected officials, maybe they're administrators, um, maybe they're doctors. But teachers have not been given the chance to voice concerns in any kind of way that would attribute power to their voice. And teachers who I've talked to, and myself included, we look at these recommendations and we're like, has, have you ever been in a school? Like, none of these things are realistic. Like, there, there's talk about like, you know, doing like a, a passing period, right? So like when students pass from class to class, that's mm-hmm. silence where students are like traveling <laughs> in lines. And like, if you've ever been in a high school with 2000 students, that is not possible. Like to tell them, hey, you're not going to be able to talk to each other. You're going to walk in straight lines. You're going to be si-. like, there's, there's no way you are setting yourself up for the undermining of your authority by asking teachers to do that. I'm at, like, okay, so let's say we have masks and we have distancing. Okay, so I'm in a class that 
you know, we squeeze in 30 kids in there and it's pretty packed. There's no way to distance. Okay. In my classroom, I have, you know, seven square tables that like 30 kids sit around. There's no way to distance unless we reduce dramatically reduce the number of kids in that room. Right. Okay. So distancing's out, right. What do I do if a kid doesn't wear a mask or takes their mask off? Right. Like, what do I do about that? Do uh, I've seen recommendations that like teachers must stay at least six feet away from students. How do I hand out materials? How do I give feedback on their work? How do I, you know, work with them on a math problem that they're struggling on? So like, I think this brings us back to that question, right? We know that learning in person is superior to distance learning. Nobody is disputing that. Every teacher believes that. The question is whether in-person learning during a pandemic with all these safety procedures in place is even possible and whether that's better than distance learning. And I don't think that it is. Like, I I think I'm going to be, if I'm back in school, I'm masked up and shielded up. All my kids are, everyone's terrified. Uh, you know, we've got one kid who's like being an idiot and like taking his mask off and saying like, it's, a, you know, this whole virus is a hoax. And we've got silent passing periods. I'm constantly correcting kids for their behavior. And I can't work with them on a problem side by side like I usually would. What, where, do, where is teaching going to actually happen? So would you say you're more for schools not reopening if the number of COVID cases has not decreased and the vaccine's not out? I think unless we see a dramatic reduction in the number of new cases we're seeing every day, that we can't even, we, it would be irresponsible to reopen. Like I said before, I don't think that distance learning can ever be as good as in-person learning. Yeah. But I do think it can be better than in-person learning during a pandemic. Now, how long do you think the kids could be out of school before the problems started becoming something that is going to set them back forever? Well, it depends what problems you're talking about, because we already have seen some of those problems start to set them back. Really? Um, yeah, absolutely. So like the students who I, let me, I'll, I'll give you the clearest example. So I work with students grades nine through 12. The program I run is like a college readiness program, right? So our students come to us. Many of them are first in their family to go to college. And mm-hmm. the promise to them is you stick with us for four years, you will be mm-hmm. college ready. And the goal mm-hmm. is for them to enroll in a four year university or a community college and mm-hmm. to have a plan to pay for it, uh, to have a plan to be able to like complete their credits and graduate from college. But, like that is the goal. Of our seniors who graduated this year, we track, like we always track, you know, our our success rate, right? How many of our seniors applied for college? How many were accepted? What does our financial aid look like? What does our Mm -hmm. enrollment look like? So many of our students who received four-year offers are not going to be attending those four-year universities. They are going to be going to community college. Mm -hmm. A lot of students who are going to be starting in college are working because their families are facing dire financial situations. So they're putting off college enrollment for the time being until their family has a more stable financial situation because they need to work full time. Yeah. Plus colleges themselves might be shut down and then you're doing distance learning again anyway, For but now it's for 30,000 30, a year. That's a huge part of the reason, right? These kids look at, they're like, well, I could do distance learning mm. at, you know, at UT and pay $20,000 or I can do distance learning at ACC and pay 10, you know, 10% of that. So then if you want to talk about like in terms of content knowledge, right? So like how, how are we falling back? So I would say in terms of what we missed for the spring semester, yeah, of course, there's essential content that kids missed that, that they are not, our system is not really built to provide an opportunity to go back and, and relearn that material because mm-hmm. so much of our curriculum is sequential, right? Like yeah. it builds on what was there before. Do I think that we're going to see a major dip in these kids' long-term performance as a result of missing several months of school? No. 
I do not. I mean, you got to think about it, though. All around the country, there's got to be kids that are, are going to handle this even worse than we have. Sure. But like gonna be. a few months of schooling over a kid's entire life, I, like, I don't think that we're going to see a massive disruption for forever. I think that if it, con- if, if it continues, right, if we continue through the entire next school year, then you will see effects. Man, well, I think after, after hearing this, I'm definitely less sure about going back to school. What, so uh, if you- well, in the defense of the American Association of Pediatrics, 1.7% to 2% of kids have contracted the COVID-19 virus. And that's on the CDC website. And I I, I think there's some evidence they don't catch it as much. From their standpoint, that's how they're viewing it. They're seeing that kids are less likely to catch it. They're less likely to transmit it. And they're less likely to show symptoms. So what if we were able to do absolutely everything in the pediatrics article? Like, let's say we were able to successfully do cohorts and stagger the drop-off times and have masks on everybody in three, three to six feet of desk space and outdoors when able, do you think that that would still not be enough to safely go back to school? So like, okay, so the question is, if we magically wave a wand and we do all that, mm-hmm. the question is, would it, would it work? Yeah. Maybe, maybe it would work. But the question, the question I would ask is at what cost? Yeah. And I, so I, I feel like the problem too is that no matter how good of a plan you made, what, what's that Mike Tyson quote? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the, in the mouth. Once you, once you get 10, 10% of your kids have COVID, you're going to panic and you're going to shut everything down and then you're right back where you started. <laughs> right. And like, also keep in mind, like, I, like I've been a public school teacher now for 10 years. I work with students with a lot of serious like academic and social needs. Like I have kids who, are, who come to me who are houseless. I have kids who come to me who have, you know, they, they come to me on Monday and they haven't eaten a meal since Friday. Um, I have kids who have experienced trauma and abuse. Um, these kids come to school and they need the stability of school. They need school to be a secure place. But you do all these things and you are heightening some of the impacts that students are experiencing outside of school. We have a lot of new cases every day. And the, the district that I teach in, you know, is in, uh, it's, in a, it's in a zip code that has one of the highest, you know, incidence rates um, in, in, in the county. Um, and a lot of our students, like I said before, their families uh, may not have access to health care, right? And we're seeing disproportionate um, impacts of this virus on populations of color, right? A majority of the students who I work with are students of color, they're Latinx, they're black, right? Those are the kids who are going to be coming back to school, right? Uh, yeah. In Westlake, they're all going to be doing distance learning, right? Those kids are staying home. Yeah. So what if, what if you live in like rural America and you don't, you don't have that much COVID and nobody has internet? It's much cheaper to provide a family internet than it is to enforce these, uh, these procedures. So the agency in Texas that has made the majority of these determinations about what school reopening might look like is mm-hmm. the Texas Education Agency, right? Like they oversee policy for the state for education. Mm-hmm. The Texas Education Agency is working from home until 2021, okay? So their employees are not meeting in person because they want to ensure their safety. Yeah. Okay, we have millions of students and teachers, okay, millions in the state who they're, who they're willing to say, we are not going to work in person, but you need to. Why? Yeah. My question is, if it's so important that we are back in person, why aren't they? What are the other, like, is this, is this the consensus or is this a majority of opinion among teachers? Or do you think that there are some that are really gung-ho about the opening? So I'd say there's definitely a mix. Um, I'd say that the majority of teachers, almost every teacher I've talked to, 
has concerns about reopening. Um, there are many like me who think that reopening isn't worth the risk. Mm. Like it's just, well, well, it might be possible. It's not worth the risk right now, yeah. uh, at least to start the school year. Maybe we wait nine weeks. Maybe we may wait a semester and reassess. But to do it now, unless we see a, you know, if we see a dramatic drop in new cases, then my, I might see things differently, but it seems too high. Uh, there are teachers who I work with who see the concerns, but, you know, a lot of teachers have this idea that their job is important, and it is, and they are willing to risk, you know, their own health and safety to do what they think is right. And, mm -hmm. like, teachers aren't superheroes. Mm -hmm. I am not immune to disease, right? Like, mm -hmm. if I get sick, I get sick. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my students have asthma, have diabetes, they have mm -hmm. elderly family members, right? We have teachers on our campus who have comorbidities, like we need to think about all of these things. And a lot of these teachers who um, are gung-ho about opening, they're thinking about their own safety, which makes sense, but mm -hmm. they're not thinking about the safety of the people around them. And those teachers are out there, like those people who want to reopen. Um, what do you say to parents who want to reopen yeah, so their kids okay. are back to school? Because I've talked to a lot of parents who have kids that are a lot younger than being in the ninth grade, and they're not tech savvy. And yeah, and they, they need to go back to work, and they can't sometimes. Yeah, I think so what do you say to parents who are really adamant about getting their kids back into school? So I actually had a conversation recently with a friend of mine who has four and a six-year-old, I believe, mm -hmm. um, and she was... Um, you know, she wants her kids to be able to go back to school. And I think the, there, there absolutely is a case to be made that, like, for parents who have to work, who have to go somewhere, who cannot leave their kids at home, there has mm -hmm. to be an option for them. Like, there has yeah. to be an option for those kids. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the option that's being presented right now is to put those kids in danger, right? Like, yeah. here, here's, what I here's what I think needs to happen. We're, the problem we are, we're having right now is we're giving parents this choice, right? We're making it about like, oh, if you want to send your kids back, you can. And if you want to keep them home, you can. I think what we need to do is realistically assess which kids actually need to come back, like which are essential students in a, in a sense, right? So those essential students, the ones whose like parents literally cannot be home and there's nobody at home to care for them, or they receive some kind of special education services that require them to receive in-person learning. Those that are like deemed essential by the school, you bring those kids back. Okay, so what do you think is going to happen in September? And is this bad? Good question. I think I, I might have given you a different answer this morning than I'm going to give you now. So this morning, I was pretty much under this idea that like, okay, there's all this talk about it, but we're not seeing cases go down somebody's going to come to their senses and realize they don't want to be the superintendent who presides over death, right? Like they don't want yeah. to be that person. Um, they don't want to be the school board member who voted for a policy or caused somebody to die. I saw yeah. several announcements from districts across the state that they were delaying, like El Paso ISD has decided to delay until at least like late September. Um, they're going to be distance learning until then. Yeah. But then today I saw um, plans put forward by Pflugerville and by Leander. Um, and those plans involve most teachers coming back to school in person. And we're like a month away from school. Yeah. Like a month from today is when I report back to duty. And a Man. month is not very much time. So if I had to estimate what, here's, here's what I think is going to happen. I think districts are going to give parents this choice of whether they want to send their kids back or not. 
you're going to have some districts where very few kids go back. Those mm -hmm. districts are going to be predominantly white and middle class. And you're going to have districts that send more kids back, right? And mm -hmm. those districts are going to be predominantly lower income and students of color. Yeah. And then you're going to see Disaster. outbreaks <laughs> of disease on some campuses. It won't yeah. happen everywhere, right? It's not going to happen in every district or on every campus. But it's, statistically, it's going to happen somewhere. Some yeah. people are going to get sick. And I'd say that there's a probability that some people are going to die. If we go ahead and reopen, it's a matter of time before that happens. And it may not happen yeah. in every district. It may not happen in every school, but it's going to happen. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. We, uh, we'll yeah, thanks for having me. And honestly, thank you for asking for a teacher's input because it's not happening. The national conversation is excluding teachers' voices. Okay. Bye, Daniel. All right, later, y'all. Thanks. Okay, I think that's all we got for today. So all you cool cats and kittens, just be be safe out there. But before we leave, we'd like to say just one last thing. We are both medical providers, but we're not your medical providers. So the opinions provided are only intended for entertainment and educational purposes and do not represent the opinions of any associated employers, nor are they intended to be substituted for medical care or advice. Always listen to your own physician or medical professional for advice regarding your personal health. And with that said, thanks for joining us, everyone. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Tune in next time on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods.